Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, the CMO of Science. And this is Harry Evans, the Director of Craft and Strategy at Science. Great to be with you again, Eric. Fun episode today. We talked to Sam Silverman, a guy that we both worked with in the past. My experience was hiring and working with him at Kite Desk, where he was, frankly, our number one SDR. Sam is an absolute superhero. I actually got to work with him after Kite Desk at Outreach, and surprise, surprise, he was the number one SDR there as well. For those who don't know Outreach too well, being the number one SDR in 2017 and 2018 there was not an easy feat, and Sam did it consistently. Uh, he moved on to manage an awesome team at LivePerson. He started his own capital group, Silverman Capital. He's doing great work with Prometric. Uh, Sam is he's on a rocket ship of trajectory. Yeah, and, and being kind of like a number one SDR to an SDR manager of dozens of people. There are a lot of learnings and, and lessons along the way. We captured a number of them. In fact, one of the, the ones that you'll have to listen to the full episode of was really around not all learning being structured and capturing the, the level up that occurs when, you know, frankly, most SDRs are coming into the job as a career change. Yeah, he's really so great at understanding the voice of the customer and how to leverage that into learning. And you mentioned career change. Uh, Sam has just such a great approach and a, such a great perspective about looking at the SDR role, both as, a, of course, a job and an earnings potential, but also a leveling up opportunity for a career and an ability to build skills that will lead to bigger and better things. So really great conversation with Sam and excited to take a listen. Wow, what a fun conversation that we have today. We've got Sam Silverman, who frankly embodies kind of like the enterprise sales development model because he's come up through the ranks. He's a guy that, you know, Harry and I have actually both worked with. I started with Sam when he was an SDR back at Kite Desk in the day. And since then, he's been on a frankly meteoric rise, both as an SDR individual contributor, a sales development manager, leading scaling sales teams of up to 50 SDRs. And frankly, he's seen and done quite a bit and packed quite a lot into the last half decade. So without further ado, Sam, great to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Eric. It's been quite a while since we used to sit in the Monday morning meetings at Kite Desk and every SDR in person in that room would break out the dictionary to try and figure out which words you were actually saying. That was always a fun ritual of Eric just showing off his absurd vocabulary that all of us were trying to keep up with. So that was always fun. But no, it was it was definitely a, a good time and honestly learned a ton there. And, and, and actually, a lot of my good friends today are still from there. Well, you know, it's funny. And one of the things that we hear is kind of a consistent theme in talking to a lot of sales development leaders is really around how business acumen plays into the role of SDR. And I think that, you know, as a, as kind of a star pupil, if you will, I'd love to hear your comments on kind of how much you've been able to leverage understanding business models, understanding where the prospects that you're calling on are trying to go and equating that with SDR success and outperforming quota. I think it's a few parts, right? Like, I think you look at the business acumen side of it, like you look at people collectively, right? People buy on emotion and rationalize with data therefore after. So you need to hit on both points, right? You have to figure out how do you connect the dots, but still be relevant where 
I call it, for lack of better terms, the I give a shit factor, right? Like if you do a little more than everyone else, you're in the top few percent. And most people, I'm sure, you know, Eric, you see it a ton being a CMO of a, you know, services tech company, right? Where you're getting reached out to very, very frequently, right? Like you go look at your inbox and most of them are probably copy and paste emails that are put in there with zero relevance, right? Zero personal context. But I think kind of going that extra mile of understanding where's this person coming from and why does this matter to them? And I think a really big thing is like understanding who you're actually selling to, right? Where that's why I've, I've always enjoyed in my end selling to salespeople, selling to people who are customer facing, just because it's easy, easier to relate to them as to how they think, what actually matters to them. So I think you know a big part of it is just understanding why does this person care, right? Like it's not their job to go respond to you. Right. Like you look at it, the higher you go up in the organization, likely the more outreaches you're getting to you and the less you care about it because you have everything going on, more responsibility, larger numbers, higher pressure, right? Likely shorter average tenure in that role to keep your job. Right. So I think it's a lot of these things that play into it. And just understanding like in sales and just life in general, where someone's coming from, I think allows you to really humanize the interaction and level the playing field versus, you know. I'm an SDR reaching to someone three, four, five ranks above me in terms of the totem pole. It allows you to really remove that barrier of it. When you say understanding who you're selling to and, and what they care about, how do you think you developed that? You know, that business acumen is something that we'd love to see in all of our sellers and all of our sales developers. But when people jump into this career, they don't start with it. So is that something that you always naturally had or the things that you did to get to that point? I think it's a few parts. So kind of growing up, I built a company in high school, ran a team about 50 sellers in high school. It was an event planning company. I definitely got a lot of real, like, real world experience. I think also growing up in New York, you are around a lot of different kinds of people, where I think in certain areas, you see one demographic right, of, of person. And being from New York, I think you're exposed to different people in terms of socioeconomic classes, in terms of wealth, in terms of demographic, right? all those different areas that allow you to see how other people think. And you kind of start picking up on things. And then also, you know, we were in a super, super small office in Kite Desk, right? 30-ish people on a good day. And we had a CEO who was very, very open to me constantly bothering him, right? Like I live in his I live in his office until he told me to go kick rocks and get out of there. So it was more so, you know, the the passion of curiosity of taking advantage of an opportunity that I saw, both in terms of, you know being around someone because like the way I view it is like an SDR, part of your compensation is tied to what you get out of that role outside of dollars. Whether it's career path, whether it's learnings, whether it's who you're you know able to associate with. Because you look at most of these jobs, they're parity in terms of earnings, give or take, right? Finding a place will give you a path to progress yourself. And I don't mean just going from SDR to senior SDR to AE or whatever it is, more so in terms of people who will spend time with you to teach you, you know, business acumen, financial literacy, right? Those things that you need as an adult that are super, super important that the bad managers don't do that. And I think that you know they give you access to people who can if they can't. Like, I think that's a really big part of it as well. Just some background for our listeners. At the end of Kite Desk, when everyone went their separate ways, working at Outreach, we scooped a lot of those people. And Sam and I worked together at Outreach. For those who don't know, Sam was our top performer in a... Uh, he was a king among kings. It was a lot of top performers, a lot of people who have done spectacular things ever since in the sales and sales development space. 
And Sam was number one amongst that group, pretty consistently, as a matter of fact. Uh, they would put up impressive numbers, and then you would put up bigger impressive numbers. And, and so one of the questions I had was about, you know, now you've transitioned, you've taken those skills. And what made me think of, that, of this was your comment about the compensation of an SDR is learning, not just dollars. You obviously learned a lot. You obviously took those skills and, as Eric said, exploded your career. You've done a lot of really interesting things ever since. When you moved on and started managing a larger SDR team, especially in the enterprise space, and you had to get them to take those skills that you already had and implement them without you being on the phones, how did you take the learnings from places like Kite Desk and Outreach and everything else you've done? And how did you start teaching others, especially rapidly in, in a in an industry where there is high turnover and you have to deal with a lot of new ramping reps constantly? I think a big thing was just focusing on who you're selling to, right? Like understanding why does this person care about anything you're saying, right? Like I think the more you understand your buyer, the better off you always are, right? Even if you can't go pitch someone, right? Even if you can't write you know, a perfectly worded email, if you just understand who you're talking to, right? And actually what matters to them, like the, if you kind of look at back at, at Live First Things, a better example, just because of the scale of the team that we had there, the first week we'd really just spend time on who are you selling to? Why do they care about this? Right. Walking through different scenarios, right? What problems they have? How do you quantify that problem? Right. What do we do that helps that problem? How do you quantify the impact of that problem? How do you then take situational analysis of, of what's going on externally? Right. Say, for example, you're selling to SaaS companies, right? picking a demographic or kind of a subset of SaaS companies, what's going on in that industry that makes what you're doing relevant, right? Helping them understand like how to just kind of play, connect the dots. Like if you look at sales development, it's a giant game of connecting dots, right? Finding who knows who, finding piece of information you can leverage and then rescale across the board. But it was more a way of thinking than it was like super tactical training, right? Like I gave, I've always given the people on my teams a ton of autonomy, which was great for some and others, they weren't there very long. Right. It was more a way of, you know, I don't never want to micromanage people. Like it's just not enjoyable to me. It's not enjoyable to the rep. And if so, like find a different job, find a different career to go do. Giving them kind of the high level understanding of these are the guardrails that they should that you should go into versus this is your step by step of how you need to block your day. Right. Kind of allowing them to have their hands in it and kind of really decide how they want to structure their personal day, right? How they want to gets the results because it's it's a it's a performance based role right like if you look at teams and you have call metrics you have sequence metrics you have email metrics like whatever it may be linkedin metrics none of those matter if the results aren't there right if your results are there and you're not causing issues for anyone right you're staying within the guardrails not you know from the brand of your company you can do whatever you want in the role and i think something that people don't realize is that different profiles and styles of work can both produce extremely solid results. I think the a big issue that I've seen is people want to put everyone into you know one box and think that you know each person coming in can operate in that box and perform at a high level. When you may have different people, three, four, five different profiles of, of people who all perform that top tier of the group, but do it in entirely different ways. Right? Like there are people who can never write email in their entire life and they'll make hundreds of calls a day and they're great and confident on the phone and they don't mind doing that that work. They're people who would rather go play in traffic than try to go pick up a phone and talk to someone. They may write amazing copy and be really good at leveraging referrals and connections they have. So I think it's it's as a leader being flexible and understanding as to how someone operates and how to get the most out of them. 
Like, I think it kind of applies to sports as well. Like you look at a Belichick and, I, and, I'm, and I'm a New York guy saying this too, like the, you know, Belichick or a Greg Popovich, like how much they can get out of their teams, making it a, like a, a better sum than, than the parts themselves. I think people want to put people into that box and then there's only so much you can get out of people. They can't fit into that box. So, you know, you were the senior director or global head of sales development at Live Person, where you had 50 plus SDRs underneath you. I'm really curious, given that flexibility that you just talked about, that places a lot of pressure on hiring and, and getting kind of like the right people in to start with. Give me some of the strategies that you would employ there for kind of getting it right more often than not uh, with the folks that you're hiring. Yeah. I mean, honestly, in SDR world, if you're above two thirds of the hires to get right, you are absolutely nailing it. But anyone who says they get every hire right in SDR world either has a horrible standard or they're just too scared to fire someone. I think a big part of it too is like getting rid of the people really quickly who hinder your culture, right? I think a culture of autonomy can either be appreciated in a big way and people take advantage of that in a really strong way or they absolutely abuse it, right? And I think that if you allow people to abuse it, the culture falls really quickly. And there were definitely a lot of learning curves to feel like, especially when looking at it, the international side of it, right? For me personally, it's, you know, you go there and it's a, it's a massive cultural gap, right? Like, I think that's a big piece of it is understanding the different cultures you'll get in different areas, right? Like, I think if it's entirely US-based team, it's a hell of a lot easier. I think when you start adding in the different parts of Europe, it becomes very, very tough, especially because you look at, you know, the States, you can have anyone work any account, you know, outside of work, work hours may be impacted, you know, start earlier, start a little bit later, but you go, you start going overseas and each country, you know, basically a state similar to here is entirely different culture as to how they perceive things as the language, right? So to, to kind of answer your question, hiring is a really, really important part of it. And I wouldn't really have people from outside the org interview anyone, right? I wouldn't really pull in, you know, marketing. I wouldn't really pull in sales ops, wouldn't pull in like sales leaders always more people within the org. And it was people who represented the values that the org had. And if they were going to all give them their sign off on it, that was basically them committing that this person is now going to follow the same values and core principles that you do. And if they don't, like they'll be gone really quickly. So it's a more so getting more people's hands in who are impacted from the collective group is a really, really big part of it. You know, I wonder, uh, you talk about basically managing to people who can problem solve and be proactive and just kind of building a culture around people being themselves, but using that to generate business. What kind of stats do you look at? How do you manage around those things? And what do you track to see? Okay, it's been a month, this person's not working out. Is it just a vibe? Is it just feedback from your team? Or are there things you're actually tracking and monitoring? So it's leading lagging indicators, right? Leading in the sense of if their numbers are there, and they're not causing issues for anyone internally, right? Like not the person who's 200% a goal, but is, you know, shouldn't work drunk or just cause, causing fights or like whatever it may be, right? Like if those numbers are there and there's not negative feedback that I'm hearing from others in the organization, they're fine, right? If the people who, and then you have people who are like, who make a very, very good effort, they're never gonna be a, you know, a, an, an A player. And there's still a big value in those people, right? For example, I had some of my team who's always at around their goal, under some months, over some months, but they were always super helpful, right? Great for office culture, really just good person to be around as well. So making sure you carve out space organization and value those people as well is really important. I think they get overlooked a ton. And like those are the glue guys you have on your team, right? The people who help everyone, 
They take up zero headspace in your world, right? They ask for help they need it. They don't when they don't. And they do their stuff, right? Like I think there's a massive value in those type of people. And they're often overlooked. And like your, you know, your core performers have a huge swing as to how the overall team performs. Because you're not going to have, if you have 50 SDRs, there's no way in hell you're going to have a team of 58 players because they're going to get job offers. You're going to promote them. They're going to leave, like whatever it may be. Like it's not a job you keep people in for multiple years if things are going well, right? It's, it's they're getting offers elsewhere. They're moving up in the organization, you know, like, so having those core performers on your team too help a ton with maintaining the culture and the values of it because they almost know. And like, I've had conversations with people like that as well of like, this is your role in the team, right? Like this part of why you're still here is you help with the culture, right? You're super, super low maintenance. I think that's a massive value. It's not talked about. Like I call it the upside, the pain in the ass factor, right? So people who perform versus how much they take away in terms of your energy are very, very valuable. So what's really interesting actually coming from you is, and, and I saw you as the number one rep at Kite Desk when we worked together. And then obviously number one at, at outreach, but transitioning to that kind of managerial role, you know, a focus of not being focused on the superstars is what I'm hearing coming across. Is that is that kind of the the right way that you would interpret your management style is really focusing on the glue guys? So you focus on the, the top people, but in a different way. It's not work-related always, right? It's more of like you open up more to them as to things going on in the organization, right? Personal stuff, more of life event type stuff versus the work. Because if you look at it on a scale of one to 10, if I have someone who's eight and a half, a nine, sure, like I can, I can make them somewhat better in certain areas, maybe, but it's a Richter scale, right? Like the, the higher you go up, the harder it becomes to make someone dramatically better. So when you look at spending your time there, you spend your time making sure that it's still an environment they want to be in and it's still an environment that they can do their stuff in. So I think the biggest thing that top performers, what I focused on was making sure that they didn't have to do anything else outside of their job that took away from their production, right? So it was being super transparent, like, hey, there's things going on in the org that they would know ahead of time or opening up more personally as well. And then just making sure you move all the stuff out of their path that they're not getting bogged down doing stuff that doesn't pay them. Like at companies I've been at, I saw it a ton where people end up doing work that was outside of what they're measured and compensated on and therefore tied against their success. Right. So, like, I think companies can take advantage of that, of people who are willing to help. But I think making it so that if they want to, like, it's entirely optional. Like, I want, if, if someone wants to get really involved in the company, you know, making sure they know their, what their priorities are and they can tell, you know, people no and, and blame me for it. But I think the biggest thing is just clearing things out of their way to keep doing what they're doing. And then more so just being super transparent about changing the organization, anything going on, and, and figuring out how to connect them at a more personal level as well matters a lot more to them than me doing call coaching for them, right? Looking at career development type stuff or looking at, you know, fi- like financial, personal type stuff versus the, you know, can we get better at writing emails? Yeah. And I was looking at, like, you look kind of the middle of the pack people or not in the middle of the pack people, but kind of the high upside people who are more unpolished. That's the bulk of my time went because I knew that if someone comes in and they're, their potential is a nine and they're out of three, but they can qu- like quickly get there. That's the biggest lift that I can have to the overall team. The core performers are more people who are kind of in that role for a longer time, who may have not been as ambitious or who may have been more content being 
in the role they're in and kind of appreciative of where they are, right? And kind of with that came a lot of flexibility, work-life balance-wise, autonomy-wise. So people almost fall into their places as well within the org. And if it fits and they're content with that, great. If not, then then it likely wouldn't be a long tenure for on, on, on one of our ends. And, and we'd always look to kind of part ways mutually. You talk about career growth and career paths. And when you talk to enterprise SDRs, especially ones that are at the top of their game, they've been doing well for a while. They're starting to look on to what the next role might be. You mentioned earlier that there's there's more than just senior SDR or AE. What do you recommend as somebody who obviously has taken an interest in the career growth of a lot of the people under you? What kind of conversations do you have? What are the other paths that you recommend to them? Where do they go other than than sales or pure sales? I think it matters what they actually want, right? Like I think a really important thing is starting with the end in mind of where you want to get to. It doesn't have to be the end in mind of like, hey, when I'm 50, I want to be doing this, right? More so just like you look at well, what do you actually want out of the role? And I think to to answer your question indirectly, like before anyone starts on my team, I'd always have them make, like create a rubric, right? 100 point exercise. What are all the things you care about? So a question I ask in every interview, like, hey, if you have five jobs on your desk tomorrow, what things or what criteria or what aspects of that role will matter to you? Write them all down. Give yourself a total score of 100 and weight them accordingly as to how much it matters to you. And those things can be you know, salary, on-track earnings, how do you earn your variable comp, your manager, location, career path, company size, industry, like whatever, like everyone's just different. Like there, there are zero wrong answers. We'll do the same thing 10 times and you and I will have different answers each time, but it's more so because you and I are at different places in our life from different personal sides and, and different things we care about that matter to us more. So understanding where they're coming from in that sense kind of helps you make recommendations and also make sure that they're, they're taking the right job, right? Like it should be a mutual side of it. You know, most people, if you're offering them a job, a lot, of people, a lot of people will just take it. I think it's important to make sure that they feel it's the right choice to them, not just a choice that, that they got. But yeah, if you look at it, trying to answer your question in terms of, of career pathing type stuff, you know, from what I've seen, you have people who go the typical, you know, AE route, account manager route, CSM, people going to marketing, sales ops, SDR management's become more and more common, especially in growing companies where there's an, a, a bigger need for it or people kind of phase out. But I always have told people, I'm like, if you can go get both direct closing experience and SDR management experience, then you're in a really good spot. Doesn't really matter the order of what you do it. As an AE, I think there's more upside, like longer term in your career, but it also matters too, like what that person wants, right? Like I know people who make seven figures for our management and people make seven figures as a seller, right? And I think they come in different ways, right? As in management, it's much more so on the equity side where as a seller, you can have massive, massive years in terms of you know selling large deals or being well above your goals in terms of accelerators. It matters more so what that person wants right? Like they want to go travel and have no responsibility outside of themselves, right? Go be a seller, right? Then you, all you own is your number. Go do that, go do that really well. And you have a ton of autonomy. But if you want to really be involved in the company and you want to really you know, develop people and be involved and make an you know, impact bigger than yourself, you can still earn big money, but then it's really t- much more tied to how well can you hire, how well can you train and ramp people and how well can you navigate things internally from different departments, right? I think that's not talked about enough is how that's why my biggest learning curve in leadership was working with cross-functional teams, right? Especially finance teams, right? That that's a massive, massive piece of it. So I think that was a really big learning curve for me in in doing so. And I think that's thing that people that really debate as to what do you want to do next, 
right? And kind of prioritize what things do you want to do? What things do you not want to do? What things are you kind of different about that they can go either way on? And that'll really help guide you as to your path. And you look in sales orgs, like you can change directions. It's not a huge deal. It doesn't be like a linear path. Like people say, you know, you do this, then this, and this. And like, that's all BS. Like I think being opportunistic is the biggest thing you can do. If you would have asked me, you know, four years ago, do you want to manage SDRs? Like, absolutely not. And Sean tells me that all the time. I know uh, Eric, Eric knows Sean very well. So it's just, it's being opportunistic and kind of you, you learn to appreciate the roles you're doing and kind of start seeing things for, you may have, you know, misconceptions about what, what the whole overall piece of it is. But I think the biggest thing looking at career path is be opportunistic, right? If you're at a place and their partnership teams are growing in a big way, go do that, right? Go show success there and you'll have a lot more mobility in the company, right? If, if there's a big need and you can go solve that problem, that's the biggest benefit to your company that you can go do. And therefore, your value jumps up. So one of the things uh, I want to join a few thoughts together in this interview, you know, you indicated earlier, especially with your experience at Live Person, you know, running, again, a team of 50 plus SDRs, understanding who you're selling to, understanding your buyer being kind of like the, the critical success factor. But you also indicated that that was a separate org, like the sales development wasn't part of marketing or sales. How did you facilitate those kinds of learnings? What are the kind of activities that you would drive on and kind of ways that you put in your team in place to make sure that they knew who they were selling to and knew those problems cold so they could have success? So we actually reported to both sales and marketing at different times organization. I have a very strong opinion on, on, on where it should land and more so based on, on who you're reporting to. So may have been a situation well, where make the call. I prefer to where, one of... Where, where should it land? Sales, 100%. Okay. For, for the reason that if you look at most people in an SDR role, not as a matter of the marketing person's competency, more so the matter of that, I think it's very, very important that when you work for someone, even at multiple levels down, they have to be aspirational in some way. And if you look at the bulk of sales in, in the direction they want to go, most of those roles, percentage-wise, are in sales of some kind. So I think having a leader that you want to be at least somewhat like or end up in a similar position to them, that will drive production more than having someone who may understand the nuances of writing copy or driving demand. Then I think the aspirational piece in an SDR role drives production so much more than the tactical side of it. I think there's a big place for marketing to work hand in hand, but I think the aspirational piece to me, I've always seen it outweigh it in a big way. And then to, to answer your, your first question in terms of like, someone coming on board. So, you know, using a gong or a chorus, right? A tool like that, that records all of your seller's calls, like the voice of the customer. There's no better way to understand who you're selling to than listening to them talk openly for 45 minutes an hour, right? So what we did was we'd break down, these are the five industries we're selling to, these are the four different personas. Here's a whole list of calls that basically think of it as giant grid. Here's a list of calls that fit each one of these checkboxes. Like, understand how these people are, how they think, how can you profile them? Right. For example, take an up and coming sales leader versus a head of IT who's been in the same company for the last 25 years. Likely a very different play as how you're profiling, having a conversation with that person. Right. One's more of looking for, you know, take the sales leader, you know, younger person who may be looking at how they keep moving up. Right. They're looking for advantages, maybe taking a little more risk for career growth, right? You take the 
head of IT who's been there for 20 years, they're, they, they may more be in the profile of, I just want my life to be easier because I'm not going anywhere. So it, it just matters like how you can then go relate to that person based on what you think they may want out of it, leveraging assumptions that you take from how long they've been the company, what brand they, they show personally, things you know about the role historically, right? So a lot of this is just making, taking the data that you have sometimes more than others and making assumptions as to how you think that person will respond to, to what it is and, and moving quickly, right? Like I'm a big advocate of done, not perfect. Like just get your stuff done. There's a lot of prospects out there and the spending, you know, I view it very equation driven, right? If you can spend 10 minutes on an email and get a 7% reply rate or spend an hour and get 10%, I'll take 7% all day long, assuming your market supports that, right? If your market is 20 prospects, spend the hour. But if you're in a high growing, you know, a SaaS company that has a ton of prospects, right? Take the seven minutes and then go back when you have more data from a conversation with someone else in the org and go write a personalized note or spend more time on it just because it is, it's not all a volume play, but you can't kill your volume for a slight uptick in productivity. I love the suggestion about going back and pulling similar recordings for training. It's a, a great way to short circuit the entire process and let them hear firsthand what it really what it really sounds like, both good and bad calls. And that actually makes me think of another question I had for you, which is, you know, we when we were at Outreach, people fought for Sam Silverman leads. We we had leads from a lot of different SDRs. We knew which ones were stronger than others. And part of that was the way that they were set, but part of it was also communication. And, and so what I mean by that is how do you train your teams to communicate with and manage the actual sales teams that they service? Like what, what is the relationship like that they build? Extreme transparency. Like that's the biggest thing is there was never an A, eh, probably a few who would like actually be genuinely pissed if they went into a call entirely blind, if they knew they're going to the call entirely blind. Right. Like I think it's a theme of super transparency. So we built out kind of framework around these, the 15 things kind of in a template format that you can pass along for an opportunity for, you know, a meeting that you had coming up to get the aid, the best chance of converting it. Right. We never once paid on held meetings. It was always on conversions. So they were incentivized to spend the effort to show the meeting was quality, right. And give them clues along the way. And also we did, you know, say it was some replies to an email. Right, you have no context behind that. Like we would do, there are different levels of research that we would do ahead of time before the meeting to give the A the best shot of converting that meeting for them because they're incentivized to go do that. And there are certain calls too. Like we were just honest, where it's like, hey, I've called this dude 35 times. He said coming back tomorrow at two o'clock. Take the call. I know nothing beyond that. This account looks good for this reason. He's the right profile person we've sold to historically. Take the call. No expectations. If it works out, great. If not. Give me any information you have to go work someone else in the account as well. So I think the transparency piece of it matters a ton versus you know making it perfect, right? Like people want to know what they're getting into, especially if maybe a sticky situation. So just the being as super transparent as possible just saves your credibility too, right? Like you can then book a poor meeting or a less sticky meeting if you have a reputation you built for yourself of booking quality meetings. And you just tell them like, hey. Do you want a shot here or no? And likely you'll take you'll take the shot at it. You know, I'm laughing because I can speak to this firsthand, having actually heard that message before from you saying, look, this isn't the most qualified, but I think it's the right person. They didn't have time. Just take the meeting, see where it goes. And uh, I don't think I ever pushed back. So it, it at least worked with me. 
Uh, so I, I love that suggestion about transparency and, and that also connects to just general knowledge transfer. How does that work in the orgs that you've worked for when it comes to transferring knowledge either between departments, between reps within a department? Is there, do you build a structure for that? Do you just connect people? Do they have mentors or buddies? You know, how do you, how do you handle overall knowledge transfer? So in terms of like information transfer, either templates or built up fields and out, build in fields in Salesforce to go fill out. In terms of overall knowledge transfer, we would do you know things that were buddy like. More so, we we try and pair them. I I hate the one to one relationship of SDR to AE because someone gets a short in the stick always. More of kind of building them out and you know hey these are the three or four people that that you support and vice versa. So you kind of see who gels, right? Like I think forcing that relationship, I think it almost organically happens in the right cultures of people who invest into the SDRs. Like there was actually an AELI person, we worked together again at Metric now as well. And she did a great job of investing into the SDR team. And she sold millions of dollars of SDR driven deals. And she got a massive return from doing so. And I think that the more you invest into them, you kind of create a culture that one, it shows that, hey, if you invest, there's actually a sizable return for you. And also it's the return too of, of you know the, the future of the sales org too. So I think that, that's a big benefit for it. So just showing that there's value in doing it always helped organically drive it then. Is that also one of the reasons that you believe that kind of the SDR org should always roll up to sales so that you can have that conversation? I think so. I think so, yeah. Because it's even though like if you look at it, Especially in the enterprise side, like you look at an average SDR, you know, average enterprise seller comp, and they're making, you know, 100, 100 low end, as high as 250, 250 in the high end. And those people, you know, have upside of two, three X their OTE, right? So it's even though they're not the sales leaders in the org, they're still people who, are, who may be an aspirational spot for that person who wants to go sell the giant transformative deals, right? Be on stage selling those deals, right? Those are the ones that, Get written about publicly, you know. So it's pairing them with people like that, getting that exposure. Not necessarily saying you know the VP of sales, the CRO, but the people who maybe in a position that way. I think there's a huge benefit to help them learn, and also it gives the salespeople an opportunity to give back and also then reinvest in that sales team for them to drive quality leads because one of those leads could be you know a multiple six figure commission check for them. Awesome. Well, you said uh, you mentioned them learning as well, and. Uh... You know, I've got my little list of questions. You keep reminding me of some of them. One of them that I've I've been waiting for the right time to ask is you mentioned a number of different references to learning. You talked about constantly being in the CEO's office early in your career. Now you've talked about systems for scaling people up and learning, both as a an SDR when you were and now as a leader. How much of your day was spent learning versus selling or teaching and managing in this case? I don't think all learning has to be structured either. So I think it's more so just being involved in a lot of areas of the business and figuring out how you apply them, right? Like I think the biggest thing for me was always just being around people who forced you to level up and like putting yourself in situations that like I use the example all the time, right? You want to be putting yourself in situations that say you're a six on a scale of one to 10, you want to be in situations that force you to be an eight or a nine or a 10, right? So that you have to figure it out. So I think it was more so helping put people in situations that they had to level themselves up and figure out how to give people chances to do so, right? Like, I think a big part of it is if someone really wants to move up or someone wants to get better, give them chances to show that they can. And if not, you have great examples of showing them why they still have, their, they still have a lot of work to do, right? So I think I don't think they're, they're, they're always two distinct things, right? I think, I think it's more so 
figuring out how you combine both of them, right? For example, an SDR, right? Giving them a super, super tough account to break into, like a high profile account or a high profile person or a project outside of it that, that ties to a potential next step for them. So I don't think it's necessarily separated. I think doing it right, you can combine both to allow them to do their role, but also chances to level themselves up as well and you know build skills they can take to whatever the next role is, or you know, two, three roles on the road as well. Well, and what a perfect segue into kind of some of the things that your career is headed to next, which is helping kind of sales folks really leverage their passive income or through passive income leverage investments that might make the most sense for their career once they've started to earn. Sam, do you mind kind of like telling us a little bit about what's next for you and what you're doing um, to help the sales community out? Yeah, so I think there's just a collective gap on education and financial literacy, right? Like one of my good friends this day, we work together at Live Person. He doesn't mind if I call him out for it, but his first big thing, he went from probably making, you know, 40 grand a year to four or five times that within a year. And his first thing he buys is a brand new Corvette. And I think a, a big thing is, you know, helping teach financial literacy. Like it was awesome. He had that goal because I think it pushed him a ton. He got a ton better, right? He's doing really, really well right now as well. That's when I still saying contact was still friends with. But, you know, tying financial literacy to roles is super, super important, right? I think you, especially people who are, because you look at the SDR role, right? It's either a, you know, fresh out of college or a career change. And it's likely a career change. The reason that they were in a job that pays nothing, right? I see a lot of teachers, a lot of you know hospitality people go into the SDR role and, and they do great. And that's a springboard of their career. So I think just helping teach financial literacy is a massive, massive gap when looking at the overall sales community. Like kind of on my you know, side project, you know, Silverman Capital really focused on helping you know, busy executives find place to put their dollars to work that's entirely passive. Like I, I'm a huge believer in headspace as well. And you know, I see people trading online all day or people focusing on, you know, buying a single family house or two. And it just takes up such a massive amount of headspace that being able to be truly passive really such a big impact. Right. You know, allowing you to really focus all of your efforts on your career. Right. Think kind of think back to that seller, right? Take for example, you know, you have a seller whose OT is called 100, 100, 200000 dollars dollars package. For them, if they do poorly, they'll make 130, 140 and be at risk of losing their job. Or if they crush, they're making three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars and on a fast track that's gonna snowball down their career. So for them, like being able to find places they feel comfortable and to put their capital that still grows and still, you know, pr- provides actual passive income to them while allowing all their headspace to be in their day job is such a massive, massive thing. You know, I started out personally buying single family houses and realized it was something that I just did not want to do in terms of time and headspace. And I think the passive side of investing really is a great route for a lot of people who love their day job, right? And, and want to be able to focus full time in it and also give them a cushion too, right? Like I think sales is a career in which if you're good, you'll always have career stability. Likely it's not job stability. So do you want to tell our listeners where they can learn more and get in touch with you? Yeah. So my website is silvermancapital.co. Um, I'm super active on LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place to to reach me. I love that. I love taking the 
career growth perspective of time and headspace and peace of mind rather than how many dollars can I get on the ledger? And clearly the, the former is leading to the latter all the same. So really appreciate that. Recommend all of our viewers check out Silverman Capital. Look at what Sam's doing. He's clearly had a passion for this even since his, since his time back as an SDR. This was something that he was talking about. And uh, now he's taken it as he's recommended everyone else does all the way through a career to you know, to a full business. So definitely recommend people write, reach out to Sam. Uh, frankly, I actually plan on doing it in the near future. And just want to thank you so much for your time, Sam. We know you're a busy guy. You've done some amazing things. For those who haven't seen it, go on LinkedIn, check out Sam's resume, check out some of the things he's he's done at these companies that we've referenced, Kite Desk, Outreach, Silverman Capital, of course, all, all the different places that he's been. You'll, you'll see some impressive things and hopefully it'll inspire some of you guys to, to keep pushing. So thank you so much for your time, Sam. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, happy hunting. Yeah. Eric Harry, thanks for having me.